Welcome to the Politica's premier radio podcast. The Politica is a global affairs club operating under Boston University in which we encourage intellectual conversation among students in pursuit of higher knowledge in the field of political research. In wake of the upcoming congressional election on November 3rd, 2020, the Politica is providing a platform for candidates to reach out and share their prospective policies. Today's podcast is part three of our Massachusetts 4th Congressional District election series with Democratic candidate Dave Cavill. An assistant attorney general and former aide to the Obama administration, Cavill has dedicated his life to being a public servant and staying true to his Jewish family roots. His goals include fighting against the opioid crisis that threatens vulnerable communities, tackling the lack of affordable housing and education under the Trump administration, and addressing the latest incidents of anti-Semitism. This interview was conducted by Juliana Hellerman, the vice president of the Politica, and Wilfred Chirinos, a chief justice of positioning at the Politica. Went and worked for a guy named Deval Patrick because I saw him speak when he was running for governor of Massachusetts in the living room, and he said every student in America had limitless potential, uh, but needed somebody to believe in them and needed a country to care about them. Uh, and so I decided to go work for him. Uh, and then I went to law school. I ended up working with the Obamas as a presidential speechwriter in the White House. Uh, and then I, two weeks after I left the Obama White House, where I got to work on an incredible range of things. Um, I was suing the Trump White House, uh, and so I worked with Maura Healey, uh, our wonderful Attorney General, to uh, sue the Trump administration 50 times and take on ExxonMobil and Purdue Pharma and the NRA and all this incredible work. Uh, and then I found out that our congressional seat uh, would be opening up, um, and that for the first time in 40 years in the 4th Congressional District, we need to pick a new representative. And so we can talk more about why I decided to run, but in short, I felt like we needed somebody who had worked on every single one of these issues before. I mean, this was before the pandemic, right? This was last fall when you were still in classes and I could still like shake people's hands and kiss babies and do the things that you're supposed to do when you're running for office. But back then I felt like we were at a moment of crisis, right? I felt like we had kicked the can down the road on a lot of these issues and hadn't done anything on them. Um, you know, the climate emergency, ending income inequalities, ending systemic racism, healthcare, you name it, it felt to me like we were at a moment um, where we had to do these things. We couldn't just talk about doing them anymore. So that's why, despite having $300,000 of student loan debt from college and law school, my wife and I decided, you know, this is the time to do it. Don't worry about special interests. Don't worry about being a millionaire. Get out, talk about what you believe in, and let's go change these things in Congress. Thank you so much, Dave. That was a really wonderful introduction. Thank I you. Think we would like to sort of turn back a little bit to your experience with yeah. public school because we were informed by your campaign manager that you are one of you are the only candidate who has uh, taught at a public school in America before. Um, so I think we, you know, particularly for university students, are curious as to how that has affected your your candidacy as a whole, your policy, but especially in uh, in the return to school yeah. in time of the pandemic yeah completely I mean you know so my my experience as a teacher uh, it informs everything uh, that I do because it's the hardest job I will ever have uh, and that is very clear I mean sometimes people still to this day say to me oh you were a teacher you had the summers off that must have been so easy try it <laughs> <laughs> try for a week uh, to keep 
32 students, 32 10-year-olds focused on anything uh, and paying attention to anything. I mean, it's like you're performing on stage uh, for eight hours a day. But also, you know, this is, you know, you really feel the weight of what you're doing, which is, you know, you're trying to make sure that your students can learn and can grow and can, you know, succeed as, as students and as people. So, uh, you know, teachers are incredible. Um, but, you know, I think, Juliana, that, that it, it's the school reopening question. I mean, it, it gets at some questions in education that, like the rest of the COVID crisis, are intersectional, in my view, because a lot of the students that were vulnerable before this pandemic are the most vulnerable during it. You know, the students that don't speak English as a first language at home, like most of my students in the South Bronx did not. Um, the students who learn differently. I mean, we just celebrated the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, there are students who are visually impaired. Uh, and so learning over Zoom does not really work for them. Um, and so this is a, this is a very difficult um, transition and a very difficult moment in this country for a lot of students. And it had been for a long time. But this is why, you know, Mitch McConnell, when he said in, in D.C., oh, well, states should go bankrupt during this COVID crisis. I'm not sure that we need to give them more assistance. Well, what he's really saying is, uh, first of all, crazy. But second of all, I mean, what he's saying is school districts should go bankrupt, that we should lay off teachers, that students shouldn't be able to learn, um, and that we as a country should not take care of students, which is in fact, I think one of our first priorities and responsibilities as a country. So I released this incredibly comprehensive plan. It's the most comprehensive in the race. As you said, I'm the one that's actually taught in the public school before. And so it's called the Horace Mann Plan for Education. You probably know he uh, was one of the founders uh, of public education uh, in this country and said that, you know, it, it was um, one of the best investments we could possibly make uh, as a society, which I agree with. Uh, and he's actually from the 4th Congressional District. He was born in, in Franklin, Massachusetts. So um, the plan begins by fully funding schools during this pandemic. Uh, and that means fully funding. It means no teacher layoffs. It means uh, expanding broadband and devices to those vulnerable students that we were talking about that need them. Uh, you know, it, it means um, addressing all the other challenges that we've had to face in the education system for a long time. And so that's why the other parts of the plan are universal pre-K, investing in K-12 education, investing in um, tuition-free public colleges and universities, uh, tackling student loan debt. I mean, look, I mentioned before, I don't know about the two of you. You don't have to give your numbers uh, to, to, to anybody who's watching us on Twitch or, or after the fact. But, you know, we're in a lot of student loan debt in this country. Um, and my wife and I are certainly not immune from it. And uh, to my mind, we're bankrupting a generation. It makes no sense. We're punishing people for getting their education. We should not be doing that. Uh, and so, you know, I think we need to address this. And then the last part of the education plan is tied into, I think, the work we need to do to combat systemic racism. Uh, which is the George Floyd Education Act. Um, and this is something that we can talk more about. But in short, my view is it is time for us to learn our real history in this country. And that includes black history. Uh, and so this bill would pull together a whole bunch of people like Facing History in Ourselves, the NAACP, a whole bunch of others to figure out what we teach and when we teach it, um, with the goal being that every student can graduate from high school knowing what Juneteenth is and why that date matters, knowing who Congressman John Lewis was and what his life meant to this country. You know, you name it, I think it's a start. Um, and then 
we can talk more about reopenings uh, if you'd like to. I have I have some concerns with the current reopening plan, uh, Juliana, but I don't know if you want to talk more about that or if there's anything else you want to talk about. Well, Dave, you know, I, I do have a follow-up question. I think uh, the discussion that you've had sort of about Mitch McConnell's um, call for the states to, to uphold their own uh, and your, your refutal that there, there should be some federal aid provided by D.C. Um, goes to sort of the, both Wilfred and I have looked through the Horseman uh, education, your policy on education and also the, right. George Floyd, um, the George Floyd Education Act. But I think we both found that that uh, would be to some extent to subvert states' individual rights over education policy. And so we were sort of wondering how, um, how would you seek to protect states' rights while still advocating for equitable education, regardless of socioeconomic makeup? So, you know, when it comes to states' rights, it's, this, is, this has a complicated history, right? Um, because, you know, a, a, as you know, uh, for a long time, um, states' rights were, were the arguments that were invoked um, to prevent states from doing a lot of things, like celebrating Martin Luther King Day um, and uh, you know, from integrating civil rights legislation um, into their their state laws and, and municipalities, and you know, in fact, I think the states and the municipalities that would be most resistant to um, to the George Floyd Education Act and to systemic racism education are probably the communities that need it the most. I, I mean, side note: every community needs it, every classroom needs it, every student needs it. But also, right? I mean, the pushback would we know where the pushback would be from. Um, but also during this era, I will say that, you know, we, we also have seen that states' rights can be used in a progressive way. I mean, when President Trump is trying to send unmarked uh, federal agents into communities to violate people's civil rights um, during peaceful protests, and that's another way that the states' rights conversation can come up. Uh, and so my view is that the education plan, I mean, as the person in this race that's actually worked in the federal government, and that's actually worked in state government, and that's actually worked in a public school classroom, you know, I think I've got the background to sort of know how these pieces can fit together. And so I don't think of this plan as subverting states' rights necessarily, but raising the expectations for everyone. And this is why, you know, I recognize we have something like 120,000 public schools in this country, uh, and that's why this legislation, as you probably noticed, it doesn't say this is exactly what we're going to teach. This is exactly how we're going to teach it. This is when you're going to teach it, and this is how you're going to test it. Because those are complicated questions, and the federal government has, you know, an important role to play in education, but it's not the only uh, person that does. You know, the, the federal government has to work with states and work with local school districts and work, work with local uh, school committees and teachers and students and families, right? So that, that's the point of the legislation, though, is to bring folks together to figure out how do we teach this, right? What should we include in that curriculum? And when do you teach that curriculum? And what does that look like? But there's ways to do this, you know? I mean, when we wanted to lower uh, the, or when we wanted to raise, rather, the, the, the uh, drinking age to 21 in this country about 30, 40 years ago, the way that Congress did that was to tie it to federal highway funding, right? Was to say, if you want federal highway funding, you have to raise your drinking age to 21. Um, and so I, for this kind of plan, you know, maybe it's incentives. I saw that in the Obama administration. I actually rolled out the Horace Mann Plan for Education 
on a um, Facebook Live with former Secretary of Education for, for the United States, Arne Duncan, who was President Obama's first Secretary of Education. So, you know, uh, and, he, and he could testify to the fact that it's tough. It's tough to change education policy in this country, but I think it's worth trying, right? I mean, I, I've said this uh, about um, reimagining policing and, and defunding the police generally. The only radical position here is that nothing has to change, right? Like, that's actually the really radical position, is when people say, no, everything's working just fine. The historic and horrifying evidence of systemic racism in this country, we don't need to do anything about that. Let's just keep things status quo. That's the radical position. That's the position that we can't accept. So I think it's time for big ideas, and it's time for us to try things, and it's time for us to have people who know how to do that. Yeah, thank you, Dave. That was uh, that was an incredible answer. Thank you for that. Um, and I'm glad that you mentioned um, uh, the piece of you know uh, racial justice and criminal reform. Um, a part of your uh, section in your platform uh, proposes a number of reforms in, uh, that includes establishing standards and reporting of police's uh, deadly use of force, um, community oversight measures, increasing data collection to curb racial profiling, and reforms of such um, have been scrutinized. Uh, by uh, certain activists who cite the ineffectiveness and overall failures of such reforms um, that had been in implemented in Minneapolis, um, in places like Minneapolis prior to the death of George Floyd. Um, and that's anywhere in the, I mean, just to name some reforms that they had implemented, uh, the de-escalation and crisis intervention, um, implicit bias and mindfulness, um, instilling body cams, you know, like uh, just many reforms that um, have been promise to, uh, you know, curb um, racial profiling and um, the disparities within the criminal justice system. However, these reforms seem to be um, ineffectual sometimes. So I kind of want to ask you, what to, what does effective police reform look like to you? Well, it, it looks like um, an end to murdering um, black Americans on camera. Um, it looks like an end to systemic racism not just in policing, but in this country. Uh, and it looks like a country that understands that you can't just say Black Lives Matter um, after these horrifying uh, incidents and murders are caught on camera, but you have to actually act like it. Um, and you have to vote for legislation that recognizes that Black Lives Matter. Um, and you have to see that as part of every single bill that you pass and every single day that you get to serve in public office. I mean, it's, you know, it's not a slogan. It's something that we have to live by and something that we have to integrate into everything we do. So you're right. I mean, I, you know, we've been looking um, at, the, at the data. You know, I think a lot of this work and response needs to be led um, by the people who are closest to the pain. And so the activists of color, the voices of color, the communities of color, they need to be the ones leading this conversation. And so you're right. You know, we've been listening to what a lot of groups have been saying about what's really needed in policing. Uh, and so, you know, part of this is I've called, for, I'm one of the few candidates that signed to signed up to defund uh, Newton Police Department. Uh, and there are already candidates in the race who said the right things, right? Who said, yeah, we need to reimagine policing and then voted against defunding 1% of the Newton Police Department's budget. Uh, you know, I just don't think that this is a time in this country where you can sort of say the right thing, but then just not really stand up when it when it's important. And so... You know, I think uh, it's important on this conversation to talk about what we're talking about here. I mean, Republicans, in my view, have been defunding education and social services for decades, but they just call that tax cuts, tax cuts for rich people and rich corporations. 
I mean, but that's it. That's the consequence of what they're doing, right? Uh, best example, Mitch McConnell, right? Like, that's what we're talking about here. So I think we need a little bit of defunding uh, of our own. You know, let's defund the things that are oppressing black and brown Americans and have been for centuries. Uh, and then let's actually fund the things that uh, we can do in response. And again, as I said, it's intersectional. Uh, you know, I recognize that. It, it, you know, it's got to be seen in health. It's got to be seen in uh, the environment to combat environmental racism. I mean, my, half of my students in the South Bronx had asthma because we've been polluting communities of color by design. I mean, it's not a coincidence um, that the air pollution rates in the South Bronx and in Chelsea, Massachusetts, and in Brockton, Massachusetts, are higher than they are in a lot of other communities. Uh, but criminal justice, uh, I think, Wilfred, where you were with that question, that that's one of the places that we need to focus. Because, you know, in my view, the criminal justice system is pretty good at criminalizing poverty and not very good at actually focusing on criminal justice. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I saw that. Like, I worked in the attorney general's office. I went to Norfolk MCI, which is a prison in the 4th Congressional District, and helped lead a restorative justice retreat. That, that system's broken. It's not working, and it's not working for anyone. And so this is why I support the First Step Act and the People's Justice Guarantee, because I think that mass incarceration is the new Jim Crow. Uh, and I think that that legislation, which was laid out you know, by Representative Ayanna Presley and others, um, would be critical here. You know, It would legalize marijuana and expunge convictions. We know that black Americans and white Americans use marijuana at about the same rate, but Black Americans are three times more likely to be arrested for it. Uh, we need to repeal mandatory minimums and end cash bail and for-profit prisons, end felon disenfranchisement and prevent states like Florida from imposing poll taxes on recently reenfranchised, formerly incarcerated people, uh, and the death penalty. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that we can do, Wilfred, in my view, um, to end mass incarceration, to end over-policing, uh, and to redirect these funds to the things that we actually need um, to the things that will create growth, to schools, to jobs, to healthcare, to social services, right? This is what we need. Um, and I think that's the that's the view that, that we all need to bring to this work. Thank you. And I, I think sort of t talking a little bit more about um, standing up and saying the right, the right thing at the right time and acting on that. Um, I'm, I'm a Jewish student. And I know that a central part of your platform is on combating anti-Semitism, which is especially relevant in uh, Massachusetts District 4, as, as a Brandeis study found that it's the greater Boston area is like the fourth um, most Jewish area in all of the United States. Uh, so basically my question is, although the, the Anti-Defamation League has found anti-Semitic acts are at a local, at a local high. Um, I have not experienced overt anti-Semitism while at BU. However, I have experienced what I think of as somewhat cloaked anti-Semitism. I think that there's a really, really difficult line between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. And I've found that as well in the international community, especially in sort of neo-fascist groups. In, in Europe, in Italy, in my own experience, um, have have cloaked their anti-Semitic views and anti-Semitic rhetoric with either anti-Zionist or pro-Palestinian reference points. And so I'm sort of wondering how your background as a whole and also sort of your, your platform um, 
views the state of Israel, especially in the current the current crisis that it's in. Yeah, um, and that's right. That's right. You you studied abroad in Italy, didn't you? I did study abroad yeah. in Italy. I thought, yeah. <laughs> well, I you know, hey, once a speechwriter, always a speechwriter. You know, you got to do your research, but. Um, but no, I mean that 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 must have been beautiful. But no, I I um, yes, uh, I'm Jewish, as you know, um, and I I have seen anti-Semitism um, with my own eyes, um, and I do want to start by acknowledging, you know, I recognize I'm a cis white man. I bring privilege to this conversation, but that said, I have seen white supremacy uh, in this country. I, there were swastikas drawn on my temple, uh, Temple Israel. Uh, just across the border um, from Brookline, uh, which is still my temple to this day, and I'm proud to have the endorsements of my rabbis uh, that that I grew up with and and have been leaders on social justice and and this concept uh, in Judaism called uh, tikkun olam uh, about how we all need to take responsibility for repairing the world. So, uh, you know, I've had young people ask me where my horns were, and yeah, I mean, I I, I know what you're talking about, and uh, you know, I do think it's important. Uh, in this conversation to also remember that, you know, when we're talking about how, how Black Lives Matter in the last conversation, uh, I think something like 15% of Jews in the world identify as people of color as well. And so, you know, they're some of the people we're talking about when we say Black Lives Matter um, and when we fight against systemic racism. But, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that I think we need to do on um, anti-Semitism. And then, you know, I also think it's an important conversation to have with respect to Israel. And I think you agree with me as well that part of what um, worries me is when people do um, conflate the two and make the two identical. In other words, that, you know, the idea is that when they criticize Israel, they're criticizing all Jewish people. Or they think that all Jewish people are somehow all Israelis or that, right, like that, you know, this is dangerous when you when you treat any group, um, particularly historically marginalized ethnic groups and, and folks uh, as monoliths. Uh, I think that that's that's deeply dangerous. Uh, and so I've gotten a chance to work on anti-Semitism um, in my career. Uh, I got to work on it in the attorney general's office. I was a liaison to a lot of Jewish communities around the state. Uh, in the aftermath of the Trump administration, because you know, look, anti-Semitism was always with us. I mean, I I, I don't need to tell you that, Juliana. We know that. Um, but at the same time, during the Trump administration, I mean, Jewish cemeteries have been vandalized here in the Fourth Congressional District. Jews have been murdered in synagogues and in homes. Uh, and then, of course, President Trump refused to condemn. Uh, those participating in a neo-Nazi march. And that's crazy uh, and dangerous. Um, and that's different. And so, yeah, in the Attorney General's office, I worked with ADL and I helped respond to complaints received on our hate crimes hotline. And so in Congress, I do think that there's things that we can do to respond. Um, I think we need to fully fund something called a nonprofit security grant program. That's what um, helps get protection and assistance and security to uh, a lot of temples uh, and, and other Jewish centers around the country. We need to pass something called the Khalil uh, Jabbar, uh, Jabara and Heather Hayer No Hate Act, which would help step up the reporting of hate crimes uh, and, and funding to, to investigate them. Um, and let's work with Jewish organizations and nonprofits. And uh, let's also um, pass uh, strong assault weapons bans um, and go after the NRA, because I think 
it's the combination of white supremacy um, and the easy access to assault weapons that makes us afraid. I mean, I don't know if you've experienced this, but, you know, when we were still going to temple on Shabbats, all of a sudden, when the door would open at the back of the room, people would, people would check out who, who had just come in. People were scared. But I think that the, that the commonality is what I do want to focus on here, Juliana, because the reason that we are afraid in, in temple on high holidays and on Shabbats, that's related to the reason that Muslims are afraid to pray in mosques. And that's related to the reason that black Americans aren't safe jogging uh, or bird watching in this country. And it's all related to white supremacy. And so I think that is part of what I uh, think it matters in the George Floyd Education Act. Because to your point, you know, you have seen a rise in anti-Semitism, and there have been people on social media, you've probably seen it as well, uh, who post, uh, in this moment, Hitler quotes, fake Hitler quotes, that they think somehow teach us something about the, about the Jewish movement, right? That they see some kind of truism in those words. And I think, how is that possible? How could somebody in this era, celebrities even, think that Adolf Hitler was right about anything other than simply being one of the most iconic symbols of hate um, and destruction and violence and tragedy in the history of the world. Well, I think that has to have been born in a lack of education. Uh, and I think teaching everybody in this country about the roots of hatred and bigotry against all people, um, about the history of oppression that black Americans have faced, but also about the history of the Holocaust um, and where the roots of, of anti-Semitism came from, I think that all will help. It will help us have these conversations. It will help push back against these notions that I agree with you are problematic uh, and have targeted uh, Jewish Americans in this country, including me and my family. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for that answer. And thank you for sharing your experience as well. Um, you know, yeah. it, it, it does uh, mean something to um, you know give a personal experience uh, on a Twitch stream. So thank you again for that. Um, I want to bring it back to another central piece of uh, policy that you have also proposed the um, to combat the uh, the opioid crisis, um, the One Act. If you want to just um, you know briefly explain what that is. Yeah. So uh, you know, I think this is something that is really personal for a lot of people uh, in the Fourth District and across the country. We're going to probably lose five people today in Massachusetts to an opioid overdose. And in the last decade, we've lost about 200,000 Americans. Our national life expectancy actually went down this decade because of opioid overdoses. And when I was working in the Attorney General's office, we were investigating a company called Purdue Pharma. Uh, they make a drug called OxyContin. And through that work and through that lawsuit that the Attorney General's office filed against that company, I met a whole bunch of families. A lot of them on the South Coast. And Wilfred, I think you're from Providence, is that right? Yes, sir. So the, this is you know nearby, not too right. far, in Attleboro and in Taunton and Fall River. And it, it's a little hard for me sometimes not to get a little emotional talking about these families I met because these are parents who buried their children. Right. These are now grandparents often raising grandchildren. Uh, and for a long time, they had been treated as if they were to blame. I mean, you know, even at funerals, people would come up to them and say, you know, if you'd been a better parent, maybe we wouldn't be here today. And the truth is, 
that it was actually these enormous companies like Purdue Pharma that changed the rules, that lied about the dangerousness of their drugs, and that caused this crisis that is still taking lives right now, today, all around us. And so when I told these families that I was going to be running for Congress, they said, that's great. We need somebody like you in Congress to fight these companies. But also just make us a promise that if you get there, you'll actually do the things that we've needed somebody to do for a long time for us and for a lot of other people. And so, of course, I said yes, and I'm going to keep that promise. And then, as you mentioned, that one legislation that's on the website, my plan for combating the opioid crisis, that's me keeping the promise. It's one of the first things I'm going to work on when I get to Congress. And it was developed with those families and with leaders in the recovery community. You know, Joanne Peterson in Taunton runs this service, uh, Learn to Cope. And anybody who's watching the stream now or, or in the future, if you need help, if a loved one needs help, there is help available. Go to Learn to Cope. Um, they have an incredible website, the number two, Learn to Cope, um, and, uh, and, and sign up, ask for help. Uh, but, you know, the, the legislation does a few things. It starts uh, by getting aid and assistance and resources to these families. I mean, I have heard the craziest stories you can imagine, Wilfred. Um, I, I talked to a mother who tried to get her son into a treatment program. And they said that they had so few beds and they were so few, they were so overwhelmed that they were only accepting people who actively tested positive for heroin. So what she ended up having to do was take her son to his dealer, ask him to purchase heroin, to shoot up, and then take him back to the treatment center. And she was crying as she told me the story. So I couldn't believe I was doing it, but I had to get my son into treatment and this was the only way. That can't be the only way to get your child into treatment. We need more beds. We need more resources. We also need prevention education. Right now, we have no prevention education in our schools at all on this issue. There's one program that the Attorney General's office developed, but we need this to be in every classroom and we need it to be federally funded. 90% of people who struggle with substance use start using before they turn 18, right? So we need to actually make sure that we're doing the things that they need to do to stop addiction before it starts. And then there's a whole bunch of other things we need to do. You know, the, we need to change the rules. We need to make sure that, that uh, we're not over-prescribing these pills. We need to make sure that, you know, these companies can't just buy members of Congress. We need to get dark money out of politics because they, this, is, this was their strategy. They spent billions of dollars, you know, uh, of their profits making sure that they could change the rules, change the regs, help members of Congress get elected and stay in office. We can't allow that to happen. So... This is all part of the legislation. It's all part of what we need to do to end this crisis and to prevent the, you know, this horrifying tragedy from claiming more lives. And you know, Dave, that is a really, a really visible problem in I think the greater Boston area. You know, when I first moved to the U, I was told that the area right next to the 575 Commonwealth Avenue was called Methadone Mile. But you also mentioned, you know, your experience with Attleboro and Fall River and Taunton, and uh, I think. That gives us the opportunity to touch on your your small towns initiative, um, which your campaign manager briefed us on. But you know something that we found particularly interesting about that initiative, and also your policy towards opiates as a whole, um, is the the commensurate emphasis that you put on cities and rural towns. Yeah. Which is you know to say that you've not written a policy that presents us more favorable to cities or to the, the countryside to post-industrial towns, um, but you've rather taken, taken extreme care to incorporate both populations. That's exactly right. 
Well, look, I mean, you know, this job um, is called representative, right, Juliana? I mean, why is it? Why is the job? Why is the title of this job representative? Well, it's because you're supposed to represent everyone, and everyone means everyone. And so, look, this is why, from the first day I started this campaign, my website was the only one in this race that was not just in English, but it was in Spanish and Portuguese too, fully translated by human beings who speak in these languages. Because I don't think a Google Translate button—I mean, you all have probably used Google Translate before, right? It doesn't. It like it. It changes it into gobbledygook, right? That that's not enough when the issues matter this much, and so that's why the website's been fully available, and that's why I committed to traveling offices, and that's why, yeah, I released this small towns plan because we have these incredible smaller communities in the fourth district, uh, right next to Attleboro, right? We have Rehoboth, we have Lakeville, we have Berkeley, we have all these other communities, Hopedale, Millis, um, but often they get left behind. They get unhurt, uh, and so we need to fix that. So, part of what I'm I'm going to do is is enact that small towns policy that's on the website, uh, and it does a few things. I mean, broadband and 5G internet access. This is the 21st century. It's very hard to compete in a 21st century economy if you don't have access to high speed internet, right? I mean, we're all supposed to work from home right now and learn from home. You can't do that if you don't have reliable access to the internet, or at least it's a lot harder to do. So that's where the plan starts, but it has a whole bunch of other components, you know, that I'm really excited about. Uh, one of them is making uh, the Fourth District the leader in Atlantic offshore wind and in the clean energy economy, and finishing South Coast Rail. Uh, this is a long, long overdue project, and it would bring a lot of opportunity and development to a lot of these communities. Uh, and we've talked about it since the '80s; it just hasn't gotten done. And I think part of that is because we haven't had somebody that's really focused on it. Fall River has the second deepest water port in New England. What that means is that it is perfectly positioned to be the leader in Atlantic offshore wind. And this is what they want. The Trump administration tried to open the entire Atlantic seaboard to offshore oil drilling. I know that that sounds like something a comic book villain would do, but it's real. And, it try, and they tried to make it happen, and we had to go to federal court in the AG's office to stop it. Uh, and so... This is our future. There's 50,000 coal jobs left in the whole country. Total, 50,000. There's 110,000 clean energy jobs in Massachusetts alone. You probably saw that stat on the website. I think we should repeat that stat every day as much as we can because it's, it's so important for our future to recognize this is how we recover. This is how we fix a 20-plus percent unemployment rate in a place like Fall River. This is how we put people on a path to these green jobs and careers. And we also have to partner with community colleges. I mean, first of all, they need to be tuition free. But second of all, we need to get people into the pipelines for these careers and also into municipal government. Because one of the things I hear from folks who are in these small towns is that they can't find people to serve on planning commissions. They can't find people to run for office, especially young people, and they need it. So let's make sure that we're supporting those pipelines and those pathways. This is all part of, I think, the work we have to do. Definitely. Um, so I, I also uh, want to bring it back to a point that you've mentioned a, a couple times, um, and it's on your website. Um, what, during your time in the AG's office, you sued the Trump administra administration 50 times. Am I correct? Yes, uh, 50 times. Yeah, it's so, a round number. I, you know, we weren't, I wasn't like keeping track, but, it, <laughs> but we counted it up at the end and it was 50. That's it. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. So 50 times. Um, so in a time where, uh, polarization is, I mean, at, uh, truly at an all-time high, how how do you plan to work in a 
Um, how do you how do you plan to navigate this um, and, and, and you know ensure that uh, legislation be passed bipartisanly? This is again one of the most important questions we face as a country. Uh, and you know, Wilfred, it's interesting. One of the things I found out in the White House because um, I would get to see all this polling data. One of the things I found out was that the country is actually not as divided as we're told that we are, right? As as Fox News would want us to believe. It's actually not true. The truth is, when you ask people, do you think that everybody that buys guns and ammunition should have to pass a background check? Do you know that 91% of Americans say yes? And that's not like 91% of Democrats. 91% of Americans. If you say to people, do you think that the climate crisis is real? 75% say yes. Uh, and in healthcare, it mattered how we talked about these issues. Because if you said to people, what do you think about Obamacare? That was like 40% of people who liked that. Then if you said, well, what do you think about the Affordable Care Act? People would say, oh, well, I hate that Obamacare, but the Affordable Care Act, that's okay. About 65% of people like that, even though it's the exact same thing. And then if you said, well, what do you think about people with pre-existing health conditions, instead of going bankrupt when they get sick, actually being able to purchase insurance? What do you think about children being able to stay on their parents' health insurance until they turn 26? 85% approval. So I think that's the, that's the place where we need to start, is to recognize that Americans aren't that far apart on these issues. But then the second point there is, okay, well then why is this so hard? Well, let's look at Georgia. Why is Stacey Abrams not the governor of Georgia right now? Because of voter suppression in African-American communities. Uh, Hillary Clinton isn't president, even though she got three million more votes than the person she was running against. And we're seeing poll taxes, as I mentioned, instituted in Florida. We're seeing voter ID laws. We're seeing voter disenfranchisement and voter roll purchase. I mean, our democracy is under attack. Uh, and so this is one of the things that we have to do uh, is end partisan gerrymandering, is get dark money out of politics and overturn Citizens United, is make Election Day a holiday, pass uh, HR1, which was the first bill in the new Democratic Congress in 2018, that would have done a lot of these things that got dark money out and ended gerrymandering. I think a race like mine is a perfect illustration of why we need ranked choice voting because I could win my primary with 20% of the vote. If I got one more vote than everybody else, 20%, that's it. I win the Democratic primary, I'm off to November 3rd, and I could be the member of Congress in this district. I don't think that makes any sense. Uh, but then, you know, of course, at the same time, there's a whole bunch of other things that, that, that we need to do to save and uphold this democracy. And so, you know, I think that, that that's where we need to start, though, right? Uh, and then the other thing is, look, my college roommate at Tufts, he wasn't very political at the time. He didn't really care that much about politics. But after we graduated, uh, he joined the military. He became a member of the Navy SEALs. He was injured uh, and lost an eye in combat. And uh, he ended up running for office, winning his seat uh, as a Republican from Texas. His name is Dan Crenshaw. So Dan and I disagree about a lot of things. I saw, I saw the face, Juliana. He, he and I disagree about a lot of things. But I recognize that Dan is not my enemy. Dan is somebody I have enormous disagreements with. But Dan is somebody that, uh, you know, on the opioid crisis or on any other issue, if he wants to do the right thing and he wants to work together, that's what I'm there to do. Uh, and so uh, I will just tell you, we talked about that statistic about the coal jobs and, and, and offshore wind. I was talking to another 
uh, I was talking to another Republican uh, representative a couple years ago, and I mentioned that statistic, and he said, no, 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 that can't be right. I would know if that were true. I said, all right, well, you just go look it up, and you come back and you talk to me after you do that. And he did. And he came back, and he said, you know what? You're right. And, and then he asked, why has nobody ever told me about that before? Because what he said was, look, if you're telling me that there's no jobs left in coal, but there's a ton of green jobs that I could bring to my community, I, you know, I don't care what we call them. If it's jobs and it's good jobs, I'm in favor of it, and my constituents will like it. And so I think this is what I'm talking about, Wilfred, is that, you know, we need to lower the stakes here a little bit. You know, we need to talk to each other, uh, and we need to talk about this work better. And just very quickly, the last thing here is, I think we need to hold big tech companies like Facebook and YouTube and others accountable for what kind of content they're putting on their sites. I mean, we're on Twitch right now. It took Twitch a long time, but finally this summer, they took down some hateful uh, anti-immigrant rhetoric from the Trump administration's account on Twitch. Yeah, we need to keep doing that. Uh, you know, having propaganda on social media sites is part of the problem, uh, and they need to hold the users on those sites accountable. Uh, and again, lower those kinds of outrageous terms and stakes uh, and make sure that we can actually have conversations again. And, you know, you talked about uh, the policies that we have been taking down the, the road, one of the which I would definitely say is polarization, but the other of the which I would, would say is holding these big firms accountable. And I think that has been, you know, something on all of our minds, especially in these past two weeks uh, in, the, in the wake of the antitrust hearings. And so I was wondering if, if you could talk a little bit more about how exact if, if you would classify, um, you know, Apple, whatever, Facebook, Amazon, and, uh, and Google as trusts, and also how you think um, broad regulation of these companies would affect intellectual and economic output in America. Hmm. Yeah, that, yeah, I mean, well, that, that's a great question. This is a, this is a really important uh, topic. And it sounds like you've thought a lot about this. Um, the, no surprise, philosophy major, deep thinker. Um, the, but, but, you know, the, the truth is I endorsed Elizabeth Warren. I was the first candidate in my race to, um, to endorse a presidential candidate. And um, I endorsed her. Part of her plans was breaking up big tech companies um, and treating them as what they are, basically, which is utilities. You know, there, there's a blueprint here. It's not a mystery. Uh, we can do these things. We've done them before. Uh, and a hundred years ago, uh, when we were in a, a gilded age where we had, you know, people whose wealth was extravagant and in the billions, uh, sound familiar? Um, what we did uh, was we treated them like utilities. We broke them up. We made sure that, that you know, that let alone too big to fail, uh, we made sure that we didn't have companies that were more powerful than whole countries. Um, and I think that was to our benefit as a democracy and as citizens. And so... The, that's what we need to do here again, and Elizabeth Warren has a great set of plans and proposals for how to do that uh, on her website. But when it comes to holding huge companies and corporations accountable, Juliana, I mean, I think this is one of the most important things we have to do in Congress, and I think this is another really clear difference in this race. And I point to as an example, a lawsuit filed yesterday by Attorney General Tish James in New York, and I don't know if you followed this, but it has the potential to put the NRA out of business. So this is the difference. You know, a lot of people who run for office, good people, you know, people I admire deeply who are running for this seat in the 4th Congressional District, talk about, you know, how we have to stand up to, to big companies and we have to hold powerful companies accountable. 
But the difference is like I've actually been in an office where we did that every day and I saw how to do that. I mean, we took on the NRA and we beat them in federal court when I was in the attorney general's office. We took on ExxonMobil uh, and beat them in federal court when I was in the attorney general's office. We put Purdue Pharma out of business when I was in the attorney general's office. And this is why I want to be on the government oversight and reform committee in Congress if I get elected, because this is the committee that has real subpoena power. It has real teeth and the ability to haul folks in front of Congress and make them answer on the record important questions and produce documents and get answers, right? This is how you do that work. You know, it, it doesn't always get headlines, but this is how you make real change in this country. This is how you actually get the things done that I, I think would be to the benefit of this country. Yeah, of course. Um, so I, I want to ask a question uh, regarding, um, so a lot, so I think it's fair to say that a lot of your platform um, involves some form of federal funding, uh, federal intervention of some sort. Um, how do you plan on uh, implementing such um, such policies in a time where it's kind of, we're, we're economically riddled with COVID, um, in a time where we're struggling to find funding uh, for essential workers now? Um, how, how would you plan, like, well, you know, just kind of just getting some insight into what you're thinking? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the first thing we have to do is fire Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell, right? I mean, that part of why we are doing this interview over Zoom, part of why we are in such a terrible, tragic circumstance in this country uh, is because the pandemic response team that I worked with in the Obama White House, as you probably know, was let go by the Trump administration. They didn't think they needed epidemiologists and scientists in the White House advising them about viruses. Look at where we are. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think we have to get them out of office. People who think that we should inject ourselves with bleach during a, during a, a health pandemic uh, don't deserve to be uh, elected to any office in this country, let alone president. So I think that that'll help. And then in terms of how to pay for these things, uh, you know, look, the, this, this tax system and, and the way that this country has been, has been run, it works really, really well for really, really wealthy people and really, really wealthy corporations, and it doesn't work that well for anybody else. Uh, and so the Trump tax cuts are the perfect example of what I'm talking about when I say that Republicans have been defunding education and social services. We need to roll those tax cuts back. And in fact, we need to ask these companies and these folks to pay a little bit more uh, for the things that we need to do as a society. And so you know, a perfect illustration is the estate tax. So, right, when, when folks pass away and their, and their children and grandchildren inherit their estate, the estate tax, it used to kick in when you had a $7 million estate. And Juliana, Wilfred, I, I don't know if your families have a $7 million estate. Mine does not. But, you know, good for folks that, 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 that do have one. But now it's $22 million before the estate tax threshold kicks in. And, and this is just in a decade since President Bush left office. That's crazy. And so if we roll that back, all of a sudden we have an enormous amount of revenue that we could plow right into affordable housing and everything else. You know, another way to do this, uh, you know, you talk about COVID. Again, before the pandemic, I endorsed Elizabeth Warren. She had a Medicare for all plan. So right now we have a sick care system, in my view, that doesn't do a very good job of that either. Um, and look at what's happened. Millions of Americans have lost not just their jobs, which is true for lots of countries around the world, but their health care. And, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, that's that's not acceptable and it's deeply dangerous. Uh, you know, we also know that, you know, uh, when we were talking about racial justice uh, before, 
There's no better example than the healthcare system. George Floyd had COVID at the time of his murder. Black Americans make up about 13% of our population in this country, 23% of our COVID cases, and black mothers are two or three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications in our current healthcare system. I mean, it's not working. It's not working for too many people. And so this is why I think, you know, the, that this system, you know, we talk about the costs of moving to a new healthcare system. Look at the costs of not moving to that new system, right? Uh, it's the same thing with, with the, the Green New Deal. This is part of why I support a Green New Deal because, yeah, sure, we talk about the costs of moving to that new system. How are we going to pay for it? Well, how are we going to pay for it if the entire South Coast floods? How are we going to pay for it if communities can't breathe the air or drink the water? I mean, this is an enormous consequence that, it, that we are facing if we don't act right now. So, Wilfred, I think there are ways to do this. Uh, we just have to get people into the work who are willing to do it and know how to do it. Yeah. I have a follow-up question to, uh, to Wilfred's question. But before I ask that, I would just like to say that um, to any of our viewers who are viewing live, we will be hosting a quick Q and A uh, at the end of at the end of our interview. And so, if you have any questions, please just post them in the, the Twitch chat. But uh, I I was listening to a podcast yesterday from the Wall Street Journal, the Journal podcast, which <laughs> talked about basically how um, being evicted is the beginning of a of a cycle of poverty in many cases. And it's extremely difficult to recover from, which is obviously something that we are f facing um, uh, sort of unprecedented levels of in Massachusetts and, and throughout the United States. And so I, I was wondering how um, you would react to uh, the, the finality of the moratorium currently and, how, and the housing crisis as a whole, the COVID-fueled housing crisis as a whole. I mean, so I, I uh, well, you just brought it up. I support extending eviction moratoriums. I mean, I mentioned before that I had a student in my classroom in the South Bronx who was homeless. There will be a lot more students in Massachusetts, a country who are homeless, uh, if we don't do something about the impending uh, eviction expiration uh, of moratoriums. I'm glad that we extended ours in Massachusetts to October, but... I mean, I think it's something like 650,000 residents in Massachusetts alone, just Massachusetts, missed payments uh, over the summer or feared they wouldn't be able to pay um, rent or mortgage. And so, again, this is a bigger crisis than any one state can handle. Um, this is something that the federal government needs to step in and help do. But while we're doing that, while we're getting direct aid to people with rents and mortgages, while we're getting direct aid to particularly low-income communities and communities of color and renters who, again, were vulnerable before this this pandemic, I mean, Julian, part of the question, of course, is why? Why are so many Americans in such desperate shape um, that they're not sure that they can afford a month's rent, that they're choosing um, between whether to put food on the table or pay their rent? I think that's an intersectional answer. Um, it has to do with uh, healthcare costs, which I was just mentioning before. That was one of the leading causes of bankruptcy before this pandemic. Uh, you know, but it also has to do with racism and redlining uh, and discrimination in housing. Uh, I wrote about this um, when I was in law school. I had to publish a note uh, when I was a law student about uh, about something, and I chose to write about discrimination against uh, African American borrowers that helped lead to the subprime mortgage crisis. 
uh, and I discovered that Wells Fargo uh, used to call subprime loans ghetto loans, uh, that they explicitly targeted African-American communities um, to try to sell them unaffordable loans and mortgages. And so this is part of the work that we have to do. I mean, first of all, there was a study, I, I, I don't know if you, if you saw this, Juliana, there was a study that was published earlier this summer by the Boston Foundation. I think it showed that something like 70 or 80% of black uh, rental applications face discrimination. They face additional barriers and credit checks that white applicants didn't face. So this is real. Redlining isn't something that happened in the 70s. It's happening right now. Uh, we need to step up investigations and stop it. But we also just need to invest in affordable housing. Um, and that's, I think, something that we haven't done in a long time. It's part of why we need to raise that, uh, lower that estate tax threshold and raise more revenue. Um, and, you know, I think the you know, it, it, housing itself is also about transportation. We have to fix a broken transportation system so people don't just have to drive to these communities. We have to create more jobs and more communities on the South Coast so that all the pressure isn't on housing in communities closer to Boston. Um, and, you know, I have a housing plan on the website that builds on Elizabeth Warren's plan. There are things that we can do here, uh, but it's got to stop by preventing homelessness. It's got to stop by preventing evictions. Uh, and it's got to start right now. Thank you very much. So we don't we don't really have uh, any questions right now in the, the Twitch chat. Um, but I was wondering if you would like to make a, a closing statement. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, the, you know, this was a great conversation, and um, I hope we can have more. So we don't, uh, you know, I think more people need to be having these conversations about these issues. Uh, there are so many people that we've been reaching out to uh, on the phone, telling them that September 1st is the Democratic primary and that this is really important and that the 4th Congressional District in Massachusetts has to not just send somebody to Congress to vote the right way, but lead the right way on these issues. Uh, and that's so important for our democracy. I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're talking about big things, everything from funding the Postal Service uh, and defending our democracy so that people can vote safely by mail to combating the climate crisis and the opioid crisis and systemic racism and, you know, healthcare in America. Big issues, right? But I just, what, what I want to leave people with is a sense that change here is possible. I saw it. I know that it is possible to get these things done, that we are not hopeless. But it starts by all of us turning these, these, these incredible sources of momentum that we have, the, the actions that young people have taken on gun violence, and on the climate crisis, and on Black Lives Matter, and turning them into actions by voting, um, and by changing these policies. And so there are good people who are running in the 4th Congressional District. Again, some of them I've known for, for a long time, and I call them co-candidates because I deeply respect them. But in this election, at this moment, we need to send somebody to Congress who has worked on every single one of these issues and is ready to hit the ground running in the middle of a global pandemic in the middle of an economic crisis, maybe even in the middle of a constitutional crisis, depending on what this crazy president does in November. And I am, I'm ready for this moment. You know, we have all the wonderful endorsements, the John Favreau and Ben Rhodes and, you know, the chairs of the select board in Easton and the city councilors in Taunton and the head of high school Democrats and select board members in Brookline, you name it, right? We've got this great support from across the district, but the endorsements I really need uh, are yours. And the people who are watching, you know, DaveCabell.com is my website. Go there. Help us do this work. Help us talk to people about this election. Help us talk about the stakes of this election. You know, my old boss, uh, Michelle Obama, she used to tell young people at the ends of conversations like this, there is so much history yet to be made. 
That is true. So let's go make some of that history together. I really, really appreciate you uh, bringing me on and having this conversation today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening in on part three of our Massachusetts 4th Congressional District election series with Dave Cavill. Please make sure to subscribe to The Politica to hear our next interview with another congressional hopeful, candidate Ben Siegel. For more content like this, check out our publication and website as well.